Hi everyone, my name is Keith and today I'll be reading the word. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Also, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Begin recording. Day 166, Engineer's Log, Supplemental. I think the isolation is getting to me. I can't remember what the start date is, and I've run out of laundry. So now I have to resort to wearing a medical uniform. Every day just feels the same, and I'm pretty sure these triples are starting to talk to me. In Klingon. Uh, Alright, I'll check in tomorrow, but uh, until then... Kapla? Hey everyone, I'm Daniel, and I'm excited to get to continue the Proving Ground series. If you don't know me, here's a quick picture of my epic shelter-in-place companions. Uh, Levi's now two and a half and learning to use his imagination. And somehow Sarah's managed to close her rings every day since this thing began, while somehow also keeping her sanity. So last week, Ruth did an amazing job unpacking the second half of Chapter 3. And the week before, we got to hear from Calvin, Laura, Gabe, and Malik. Now, if you haven't had a chance to check out either of those messages yet, now's the time to hit pause on this one. Seriously, I, I don't mind. Welcome back! Weren't those awesome? So today, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now, in writing this letter to the dispersed and persecuted Christians in this time, Peter's got a sp specific audience he's addressing. He's talking to folks who have been forced out of place, and now live in cultures and areas that might be unfamiliar. So he's got a lot to say about why Christians 
should live differently and what differently looks like. Now let me pray for all of us really quick before we jump in, which is really strange by video because I have no idea who's actually watching and when. God, I pray this afternoon that you'd encourage us through your word and that uh, for those watching this video, uh, they wouldn't hear my words, but yours. Uh, we just um, thank you for today and your grace to us. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. All right, let's go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, starting with therefore at the beginning, we have to remember that just before this, Peter's been focusing on Jesus' suffering as part of God's plan for our benefit. Chapter 3 concluded that he's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So why the pivot from talking about Jesus' place at God's right hand to pointing, pointing out his suffering and, and our suffering are in the body? Well, I think Peter's trying to give his readers a healthy dose of reality. Peter isn't talking here about mythology and idealism. He's writing to a bunch of dispersed Christians under foreign and sometimes hostile governments. He's talking about the reality that life isn't easy. It's hard. There's going to be suffering, especially if we follow Jesus. I mean, even in the best of situations, there's still going to be injustice, inequality, loss, and death. That's the reality we live in. It's a reality we can touch and smell. It's a reality that physically and emotionally hurts. But it's also a reality that Jesus experienced and knows deeply. And it's a reality that soon after writing this letter is going to get Peter killed. Now, you might be thinking, wow, one verse in, and this message is a real downer. Well, I mean, to be fair, we're picking it up like 70% of the way through the letter. And I'd also argue that Peter talking about physical suffering is actually a really good thing. It reminds us God isn't surprised by our suffering. I mean, just look at what Jesus went through. Another way of saying this is that if your theology can't handle human suffering, it's out of touch with reality. And Jesus is real. I think it's way too easy for us to be out of touch with reality, to stay in our own reality distortion fields. With Netflix or social media, it's either to disconnect or isolate into our own echo chambers. But it's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes, that when life gets really hard, the distractions fade and we humans tend to look for God. But we can also make the mistake of thinking that if we live for God now, it'll make our life easier and more comfortable. It's not true either. That's not reality. And if we buy into it, we're going to be unprepared for what the Bible says we should actually expect. That's why it's, it's great the Bible's honest and tells us that following Jesus won't make life here any easier. If the Bible were all just heartwarming proverbs on how to live comfortably and in prosperity, what hope would it be in life's inevitable trials? God's word helps by encouraging us with one simple fact. We're not in control. Our con control is an illusion. We all know this to one extent or another. But if our theology is built on our own goodness, on ourselves, or our own actions, then we're going to be blindsided and hopeless by sickness, by racism, by fires, just to name a few. So that's why I believe it's seriously good news when the Bible says that Jesus is Lord. 
because it's, it's just another way of saying that he's the one in control. Peter's going to hit this point harder in verse 11, but it's one of the central pillars of our faith. I love how Romans 10, 9 puts it when it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our, our theology relies exclusively on God being in control and him being alive. That's the basis for our hope, our peace, and our action in the midst of suffering. The Bible isn't a manual on how to live better. It's a love story about a God who's intervening in human history to bring about redemption. It's about a God who's bringing beauty from the ashes of sin and suffering in a way that only he can. This series, we've been talking about how God changes us, how he transforms us through difficulty and trials. It's experiences like pandemics, fear, loss, loneliness, and injustice that teach us about God and about ourselves. These are what reveal our true priorities. Peter says that we shouldn't be living for ourselves, our comfort, our evil desires. Right now, it, it's so easy to tune out, to disconnect. I get it. It's easy to see shelter in place as a big intermission where we have more time to ourselves to live however we want. But Peter says, have the same attitude as Jesus, who died for our sins and is alive today. Now, now that should affect our perspective. Let me say that again. If we really believe that Jesus is alive today, alive in the midst of what's going on in 2020 and active, then it should impact our perspective and our decisions. If Jesus really is in control, if he really is Lord, then trust is a reasonable response. Trusting that, that he's got a bigger plan and that he cares for us, it's what gives us the opportunity to see everything differently. Let's go on to verse 3. It says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Now, really quick, the Greek word translated pagan here doesn't have the negative connotations pagan does for us. The word used is ethnos, the root word for ethnic, and it literally means people group. It's sometimes translated Gentiles or nation, but in this context, we can probably just read it as basically everybody else in that culture. So it says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the culture around you chooses to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Now, I want to stop here for a minute, because I know the first few times I read this, I just skimmed it, and it didn't sink in. When I catch myself skimming, it's a good chance to ask, is what I read more important than I realized? I mean, it's probably there for a reason. And Peter very explicitly calls out a few lifestyles in his day. Remember, this is a letter to first century Christians in a culture where much of the temple worship, well, um, I'm not sure quite how to say this, it wasn't the least bit family friendly, if you get what I mean, especially looking at the list. But when Peter issues his warnings about the way others live, it's 100% not to make his readers feel holier than thou. If we see it that way, we're totally missing his point. He's actually saying his readers, the Christians he's writing to, they used to do all this, and recently. He's writing to people who used to spend their weekends doing other stuff, this stuff. He's saying that in the not-too-distant past, there wasn't any difference at all between the people who are now in the church and those who aren't. And that's true today, too. But Peter's saying all this to remind them that you've spent enough time living that way already. He's encouraging them to look forward to Christ, not backward with nostalgia. Isn't it easy to go back to what's comfortable? Especially when we're disoriented, we tend to go back to doing what we always do. Even Peter did this. 
In John 21, 3, after personally verifying that Jesus' body was missing from the tomb, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, the problem is that we're creatures of habit. It's fine. It's that we also do this for our familiar sins. When the Bible presents us with lists, I think it's a very human response to resist them. And what I did initially is probably pretty common, skimming. Yeah, bad, 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 bad. Let's, let's keep scrolling, right? And if we're paying more attention to what it says, it's easy to have the self-righteous response of finding an item in the list that we're good at, and then it, it proves that we're fine. But we can also try to rationalize and find an interpretation that demotes the Bible's strong and difficult truths to being irrelevant today, because we don't want to think they could apply to us in the 21st century. So why don't we read that list again a little more carefully? And I totally get it if you're already cringing in your seat, like, seriously, he's going to review that list again? Yeah, I need to read it again just to preach to myself. Verse 3, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Peter's writing to a church of real people. And I think we can agree, this is some seriously personal stuff he's bringing up. I mean, he even says stuff about sexuality here. Is he crazy? Like, is the Bible trying to deeply offend both 1st century and 21st century readers? What should we do when the Bible makes us uncomfortable? At Church of the Valley, we hold to a very high value of Scripture. We don't just believe the Word of God is true. We also believe it's authoritative because God gave it to us. Now, I'm not saying that it, poof, appeared in some mystical golden letters. The Bible is a collection of writings from across centuries by different human hands, recording what they heard, saw, and experienced. What we mean by God gave it to us is that there's one author, God, and that he's revealed himself in many ways through human history, none more amazing than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We believe God's word is authoritative because he doesn't play games with who he is. When he says something or does something he wants recorded, he gets it right, and the Bible is consistently confirmed by historical archaeology. That's why we listen when the Bible speaks of God's character and God's commands. And there's wisdom in life in paying attention and changing our direction to follow his, because when we do, that's called repentance, and it's one of God's greatest gifts to us. So let's face it, the Bible says a lot of really uncomfortable stuff. It's easy to listen to Jesus sum up the law as love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. But if you read the law, he just summed up. You can find yourself scratching your head and going, did it have to say all of that? And Jesus also says uncomfortable, uncomfortable stuff too. In John 6, many of his disciples complain, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And in verse 66, after, many, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Guess which disciple responds? Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. When the Bible makes us uncomfortable, it's an opportunity to lean in and ask, why? Are we in alignment with what God says? Or are we following something or someone else that's actually an idol? Let me give a quick dictionary definition. Idolatry is extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. Now I know, that, that sounds like a really good thing, right? 
So what's the problem? Well, it's about the direction of our heart. When directed at God, our extreme admiration, our worship, it fulfills the greatest command about loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Idolatry isn't about the act of worship. It's about the the focus of our worship. Idolatry is when our greatest devotion is directed at anything or anyone other than God. It's trying to make something God in our life that isn't. Looking back at Peter's letter, is he trying to offend his readers? I don't think so. I think he's trying to explain why their friends aren't happy about this Jesus person. If you've stopped worshiping idols with your friends, don't be surprised if they get upset by your priorities. Now, how might this apply to us? Well, Peter's talking about how we spend our time. It's a really sensitive subject. In our digital age, would this be partying, internet trolling, substance abuse? Or maybe our worship is more personal, spending all of our time working, watching Netflix, porn, sports, or playing games. Or here's an interesting question. Are our friends ever surprised to see us putting our faith into action? If not, maybe our priorities aren't as different as we think. Let's go on to verse 5. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is definitely strange wording. I mean, what's this talk about preaching to dead people? As Miracle Max from The Princess Pride says, when you're all dead, the only thing left to do is go through your pockets for loose change. So what exactly does it mean that the gospel was preached to the dead? I'm not sure. Most commentators don't agree, and they're the theologians with degrees in ancient Greek. Now, when we come to something that's not clear, we should rely on the consistency of God's word. We shouldn't hinge our beliefs on our interpretation of a single verse, especially if it's not something that's clearly understood and repeated elsewhere. Said from an engineering mindset, I think it's better to accept more false negatives, missing something that's there, in order to avoid false positives, finding something that isn't there. Finding false positives, believing false truths, is something that can easily lead us astray and into contradiction with the rest of Scripture. So looking at verse 6, I think he's reiterating some of what he said in verse 1 and 2. Though the flesh, the body, same Greek word as before, will be judged, God's Spirit provides life. But who are the living and the dead? Who are the dead to whom the good news is preached? My opinion is that the least surprising explanation is Peter doesn't literally mean dead in the sense that your heart stopped beating. I think he's referring to those who are spiritually dead. Those who live for self, who are still plugged into the matrix or whatever your favorite wording is. I think this is agreeing with Ephesians 2, which says, because, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Peter's saying that the good news was preached to dead people. In light of Ephesians 2, I think that's us. I think judgment of the living and the dead is the same as Matthew 25, where Jesus teaches someday he'll separate sheep and goats. One thing is clear, though. The Bible does teach that on our own, we're spiritually dead. In the Greek, nekros, which is where we get the word necrotic, It doesn't say believe in yourself, you can do anything. Trusting ourselves, following our own purpose, defining our own identity, it's not a recipe for just mostly dead. It's a recipe for all dead. I know, this is the exact opposite message our ethnos, our culture, says. Our lives aren't supposed to be about us. 
It doesn't matter how powerful a person we are or how much money, knowledge, and control we have. All these can be gone in an instant. We're all equals at the foot of the cross because being with Jesus is a gift. It's one that we can't even earn and we can't even hold on to ourselves. God's the active one. He's the one who gives life to dead people. This is why in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. God's not dead, and he's described in the Old Testament through the law and the prophets as the living God. When Jesus asks Peter, the guy who wrote this letter, who do you say I am? In Matthew 16, 16, he answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. God's livingness, his self-existence, is the very basis for his name as given to Moses when God says, I am who I am. That's why the gospel, the good news, can be summed up so simply. Jesus is alive, was, is, and forever will be. The Bible is the longer explanation of why he died for us and rose again, and it gives us a better picture of his mercy and grace. Everything comes back to this, that Jesus is alive, and this is the gospel that Peter's saying is to be shared with everyone those who will believe and those who won't. And for those who follow Jesus and die by coronavirus, cancer, car accidents, persecution, old age, anything, the New Testament authors actually use sleep as the better word. They're not trying to confuse readers, though Jesus definitely confuses his disciples by calling Lazarus asleep. It, it's trying to convey that at the core of our faith, there's hope. If after being killed on a Roman cross, Jesus physically, bodily came back from the dead, then we can trust he's Lord. He's got this, and us too. That's the basis for Peter's argument about doing, against doing whatever we feel like doing or whatever it is we used to do. There's a better option available now. Live according to the Spirit of God. The more we trust Jesus, the more we can leave our familiar dead-end sins and idols in the past. Let's keep going. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. The end of all things is near? Right, right. It's still 2020. I almost forgot. Now, I'll be honest, Peter and I might disagree on the definition of near. Peter went to sleep long ago, and even Cold War predictions on the end of all things haven't happened yet either. Regardless, Peter brought it up, so how about we talk about the end of the world? Now, I don't think he's referring to the heat death of the universe here. What would that have to do with how the church should live now? And while true, it's probably not that helpful to note that we're almost 2,000 years closer to the end of all things than when this letter was written. The Bible also isn't very clear about the future, except, except for one thing. See, Christians throughout history have always agreed that Jesus said he's coming back. This, this isn't a promise that's been in dispute. Even if we don't know what the end of all things looks like, we can still pay attention to what he's trying to say. When it comes to each of us personally, let's face it, the end of all things really is near. Each of us is less than 100 years from facing the end of all things, probably considerably less. Peter's point? Live like it. So what does he say to do? Do as much good as possible and build a lasting legacy? Nope. What would your answer be if you knew that you had a more limited future, say only three or five or 10 years left? What changes would you make? Would you have a different focus? I've got to admit, I I wouldn't have given Peter's answer to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Why is prayer so important? Because that's what Jesus did. 
Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. For context, Jesus has just eaten his last supper with his disciples. He knows he's going to be betrayed soon. He said as much, even though the disciples didn't catch it. Verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, and remember, this is the guy who later writes the letter we're reading, and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew he had only hours left before being arrested, humiliated, tortured, and sentenced to death on a Roman cross. Peter, James, and John, they didn't know all this. They'd been with him three years. How are they supposed to know the clock had just run out? Verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now looking back on this one, these guys must have kicked themselves pretty hard. Jesus gave them clues about what was going to happen, and now he'd asked them a second time, Watch, pay attention, and pray. All while he was submitting to God's will through prayer, and that, that was exactly his priority. Verse 43, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes the betrayer. Jesus told them to watch and pray. He knew the importance of prayer. So when Peter writes a few decades later that time is short so we should pray, he's saying it from experience. I mean, he was there with Jesus the night when it all went down. He missed it by choosing sleep instead of prayer. Peter emphasizes the importance of prayer because he's following Jesus' example, and he's, he's got the experience to back it up. Now, when it comes to thinking about the fact that time is short, experience is a good teacher. We can grow through hard times because hopefully through them, we can see how God has always been faithful. In my life, I know he has. And looking back on how my mom handled her cancer diagnosis, she did it well. She relied on God. And when trials come um, like that my way, I pray that I will handle them with the same kind of faith. But I also know that at the time, I never imagined that she'd only have a month. The night before she died, before she went to sleep, well, like Peter, I wasn't sitting with her either. I was downstairs gaming, having no way of realizing exactly how little time I had left to spend with her. I've learned being present is important. And the Bible here is saying that being, being present, spending time with God today, our Heavenly Father, that's important. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. How do we look forward? How do we do this knowing that trials will come? How are we supposed to go through them today? Well, with any luck, I mean, this is going to be the only year of mandated social distancing in our lives. But pandemic or not, we all get the same 168 hours every week. How are we actually investing them? 
Let me show you a few graphs and we'll stop at the beginning of this year. Now, imagine if I went back in time and told you in January there was suffering coming, a global pandemic that would kill hundreds of thousands, cripple world economies, forcing remote work, school, and church, and cutting travel to a fraction of what it was before. You'd probably think I was insane. But if you happen to believe me, there's no way you'd invest in any of these transportation companies, right? That is, unless I went further to tell you to put your money in Tesla this year. Now I've said two crazy things about the future. If you don't believe the pandemic part, you're going to write me off regardless. But if you're willing to trust the first part, shouldn't you act on both? I think Peter's basically giving us the same kind of investment advice, only not with money, but for our time. If we believe Jesus is alive, then we should listen when the Bible implores us. Our time is short. Don't waste it. Learn to pray. Now, honestly, I've been, I've been terrible at this the past few months. I'm stubborn and proud, which is me saying that I tend to think I've got all the answers and I don't need to listen and pray. But, but my takeaway, as I've been studying this particular passage, thanks, Tim, is that prayer is a beautiful reminder of the good news. It's a, a special opportunity to worship God and hopefully align my priorities with his. And it's a great reminder that, that he's the one in control, not me. Let's go on to verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. There's a lot of encouragement to unpack here. And Peter begins with above all, which is like saying, so if you hear just one thing, he's about to give us another list in the next few verses, this time positive for how we should live. Now, if you've been around churches for a while, this verse might be pretty familiar because it gets quoted a lot. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Let's take a closer look at two words here. First, the word that's translated deeply in the NIV is fervently in some other translations. It's the Greek word ektenes, which is defined as intently or stretched out. It, it means persistent action and not just a strong feeling. The second word is the one translated covers, and love covers over a multitude of sins. It means to hide, and this isn't in a negative context. It's not saying that love leads to cover-ups and being blind to the truth. It, it, it isn't a foolish love that overlooks the self-destructive sins of one another. It's a positive form that actively wipes out sins, completely covering the damage. It's forgiveness and reconciliation. Take a look at James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's the exact same phrase. This love that covers sin, it's action. It's taking steps towards repentance and forgiveness. And in fact, the best example is what Paul writes in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And just as with prayer, we might ask, why is this so important? And the answer is exactly the same, because that's what Jesus did. And if he's in control, we should follow his example and his commands. Commands like, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Well, we're supposed to lose count, as love keeps no records of wrongs. What about with those who don't believe? Well, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What if someone's been hurt by me? Well, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. 
Love covers a multitude of sins because love means obeying Jesus' commands and making the first move. Now, hopefully this is easy, especially in the small things, but in the face of unflinching pride, crushing loss and irreparable harm, forgiveness can seem impossible. And that's when it matters most that Jesus is Lord, that God's intervention made it possible for us. We've got to start in prayer, asking for the humility to admit our faults and, and asking for the desire to forgive because love doesn't give up and love makes the first move. Let's finish up the section with 9 through 11. What's the point of all this and what might it mean to us today? Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's pretty clear on the point of all this. It's Jesus. Forever and ever. Doing these things isn't for enlightened self-interest or because we want to be a good person. It's about the name, the reputation of Jesus. Our motivation matters. That's why he mentions grumbling, because it speaks to the condition of our heart. Do we want God to get the credit or us? Do we believe that everything we have is, is from him and for him, or do we act like it's ours? If we're stewards of God's gifts, as Peter says, then we're all living on gifted time, gifted money, gifted knowledge, and gifted skills. That's why motivation matters. It's about Jesus. Everything we, sh- we do should be out of gratitude and love so that, so that he rightly gets the credit. In the gospel accounts, Peter's an all-in, faith-means-action kind of guy. He's always first out of the gate. Or as Tim said in the past, he's a a ready-shoot-aim kind of dude. In Matthew 14, he's the one who gets out of the boat and tries to walk on water. And, And when they come to arrest Jesus, he's the one who pulls a sword and Jesus has to tell him to stand down. So when Peter says that we ought to serve others in the name of Jesus, he's not kidding around. And right now, we've got a ton of opportunities to serve one another. There's a pandemic isolating us, fires have affected our community, and we've got our own mental, emotional, and spiritual battles. I was talking with a friend last week who observed that in an emergency, it's easy to handle a temporary inconvenience. If a friend needs to evacuate out of the path of fires for a week, you make space. If your neighbor needs to take a kid to the ER, you watch their place and babysit their other kids. If someone gets their identity and bank account stolen, you help make sure they can at least buy food and pay for the essentials. The point is this, when we see an emergency, when we identify with one another, and when we see that the need is stronger than the inconvenience, we serve. In this letter, God's word is saying that that, that Jesus is alive, he's in control, and he loves us. And life is short, live like it. Pray and serve out of love. The more we reflect on how Jesus is willing to go so far for us and how far he's willing to go, the better equipped we'll be to love others. If you're looking for a way to respond this week, please start in prayer. From there, let's take the next steps individually and as a church. Let's serve in faith and thankfulness to the one who deserves all the glory. That's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening.